Chapter Forty One of Max by Catherine Thurstall Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Forty One. All was finished. Mystery was at an end. The pilgrim's staff had been placed in Maxine's hand. Her feet set towards the great white road. She leaned back against the window of the salon, and her mental eyes scanned that road, the coveted road of freedom, the way of a splendid isolation, and in a vague, dumb fashion she wondered why the whiteness that had gleamed like snow in the distance should take on the hue of dust seen at close quarters. She wondered why she should feel so absolutely numbed, why life with its exuberances of joy and sorrow should suddenly have receded from her as a tide recedes. There had been no battle. Hers was a bloodless victory. Fate had been exquisitely kind, as is fate's way when she would be ironical. Maxine could call up no cause for grief or for resentment, no cause even for remorse. She had confessed herself. She had been shriven and blessed and bade to go her way. Passing in review these phantom speculations, her eyes suddenly refused the vision of the mythical white road, stretching away in brain-sickening length, and her physical sight caught at the familiar picture revealed by the balcony, the thrice-known, thrice-loved shrubbery, where already the glossy holly-leaves were stirring under September's fingers, whispering one to the other of fine, cold autumn hours when gales would sweep the heights, bringing death to their frailer brethren, while they themselves nestled snug and strong, laughing at the elements. She traced the familiar outline of these sturdy bushes, and her perfect triumph seemed like a winding-sheet about her limbs. She was above the world, removed from care, and all she knew was that she would have given her heart for one moment of the hot human grief that had seared her not four months ago. She turned from the trees, turned from the stars, and moved back into the unlighted room. All was quiet and dim. She stumbled against the armchair, and recoiled as though her friend had touched her inopportunely. Then she passed blindly onward, finding the little hall, finding the outer door with groping hands. Outside was a deeper darkness, for here no starlight penetrated. But Monsieur Cartel's door was ajar, and through the opening came a streak of lamplight and the hum of voices. Pausing, Maxine caught the deep, humorous tones of Monsieur Cartel himself, broken first by an unknown voice, quick, tense, typically Parisian, then by the light laugh of Jacqueline. In her cruel perfection of triumph she had no need to fear these voices, these little evidences of sociability. They could not hurt her, for was she not impervious to pain? Another laugh, full and contented, came to her ear, then the opening of the piano, and the masterful striking of a chord. A murmur of pleasure gave evidence of an audience, and instinctively she moved forward, as a wanderer on a dark night draws near to a lighted dwelling. Gaining the door, she softly pushed it open, as Monsieur Cartel executed a roulade, which melted into a brilliant piece of improvisation. A bright lamp shone in the hall, but beyond the open door of the living-room displayed a half-lighted interior, with a handful of people grouped about it. Foremost figure was Monsieur Cartel seated at his music within a radius of yellow light shed by four candles, while, beside him, a tall, thin boy, and behind him, Jacqueline seemed enclosed in a secondary, fainter circle of luminance. The rest of the room was in shadow, 
and as Maxine entered she scarcely noticed the three other occupants, two men and a woman, who sat in a row close to the door, their backs to the wall. No one commented upon her entry. The little Jacqueline glanced round once, smiling a quick welcome, but returned immediately to her contemplation of M. Cartel. The younger of the two men by the door, an Italian, paused in the lighting of a cigarette, but his companion, an old Polish Jew with a classic head and long grey beard, retained his attitude of rapt attention, while the woman, who sat a little apart and whose large black hat hid her face, made no sign. Treading softly, Maxine entered and crept into a seat opposite the trio, realising, with an indifference that surprised her, that the woman was Lisa of the Bal Tabarin and the Café des Cerises Jumelles. The music poured forth, a glittering stream of sound. The young Italian lighted cigarette after cigarette, smoking furiously and beating soundless time upon the floor with his foot. The old Pole sat lost in an emotional dream, tears gathering slowly in his eyes and trickling unheeded down his cheeks, while Lisa, in her moveless isolation, gazed with fixed intensity at the wall above Maxine's head. Time passed. Time seemed of small account in that atmosphere, as the outside world was of small account. Not one of the little audience questioned how the other lived. It mattered nothing that in other hours the artistic fingers of the young Italian were employed in the manufacture of fraudulent antiques, that the enthusiast by the piano wrote humorous songs at a starvation wage for an unsuccessful comique, that Lisa, finding humanity foolish, made profit of its folly. "'What would you?' they would have asked with a shrug. "'One must live?' For the rest there were moments such as this, moments when the artist was paramount in each of them, when pure enthusiasm made them children again. Monsieur Cartel played on. He had forsaken improvisation now and was interpreting magnificently. Occasionally the boy by the piano threw up his hands ecstatically, muttering incoherently to himself. Occasionally the young Italian broke silence by a sharp, irresistible brava. But for the most part, respectful silence spoke the intensity of the spell. Then at last Maxine, sitting in her corner, saw Jacqueline bend over the shoulder of Monsieur Cartel, her hair shining like sun-rays in the candlelight, saw her whisper in his ear, saw him look up and nod in abrupt acquiescence, and saw his square-tipped fingers lift for an instant from the keys, and descend again to a series of new chords. A little murmur of interest passed over the listeners. The Italian threw away his half-smoked cigarette and lighted another. The Pole smiled tolerantly with half-closed eyes, as the old smiled at the vagaries of the young. And Maxine, in her shadowed seat, felt her heart leap tumultuously as the little Jacqueline, her arm naively round the shoulders of Monsieur Cartel, her head thrown back, began to sing the first lines of the duet in Louise. Depuis le jour où je me suis donné, toute fleurie semble ma destinée. Je crois rêver sous un ciel de furie, l'aime encore grisée de ton premier baiser. And M. Cartel, lifting his head, broke in with the single electric cry of Julian the lover. Louise! Then, as if answering to the personal note, Jacqueline melted into Louise's sweet admission of absolute surrender. Quelle belle vie! Ah, je suis heureuse, trop heureuse, et je tremble délicieusement, au souvenir charmant du premier jour d'amour. 
effect was instant. The youth by the piano smiled radiantly and nodded in vehement approval. The young Italian puffed fiercely at his cigarette. A flash of light crossed Lisa's gaze, causing it to concentrate. Jacqueline had no extraordinary voice, but music was native to her, and she sang as birds sing with a true light sweetness exquisite to the ear. Souvenir chameau du premier jour d'amour. The declaration came to the listeners with a pure sincerity. It abounded in simplicity, in youthfulness, in conviction. A quiver ran through Maxine. Her numbed senses vibrated. By an acute intuition, she realized the composer's meaning. More, she appreciated the thrill called up in the soul of Monsieur Cartel. Her ears were strained to catch each note, each phrase, with an intentness that astonished her. It suddenly appeared that out of all the world, one thing alone was of significance, the close following of this song, the apprehending of its purpose. Souvenir charmant du premier jour d'amour. The first night with Blake upon the balcony sprang back to memory, and with it the wonder, the delight, the illimitable sense of kinship with the universe. Again the spiritual sense lived in her, not warring with the physical, but justifying, completing it. She sat upright against the wall, suddenly fearful of this overwhelming mental disturbance, fighting the cloud of memory almost as one fights a bodily faintness. The music grew in meaning. She heard Julian's ardent question. To no regret rien? And Louise's triumphant answer. Rien. The words, simply human, divinely just, assailed her ears, and by light of the intuition, the superconsciousness that was dominating her, the whole truth of this confessed love poured in upon her soul. She saw the halo about the head of the little singer. She appreciated the sublime giving of herself that cried in the music of the song. It was no mere sentiment on the lips of this fair child, it was the proclamation of a tremendous fact. She leaned back against the wall, lips set, hands clasped. She clung to the rock of her theories like a drowning man, and like the drowning man she realised the imminence of the inundation that threatened her. The music swelled, and now it was not Jacqueline alone who sang. Monsieur Cartel's voice rose, completing, perfecting the higher feminine notes, blending with them as the music of wind or running water might harmonise with the singing of a bird. It was not art, but nature, that was at work in the words. Nous sommes tous les amants, fidèles à leur serment. Ah, le divin romain! Nous sommes tous les âmes, que brûle la sainte flamme du désir. Ah, la parole idèle, dont s'enivre mon corps tout entier. Dis encore ta chanson de délice, ta chanson victorieuse, ta chanson de printemps. The duet wore on, enthralling in its closeness to common human life, with its touches of tears, its touches of laughter, its hints of tenderness and bursts of passion. Not one face but had softened in comprehension as Louise painted the picture of her home, of the gentle father, the scolding mother, the little daily frictions that wear patience thin. Not one heart but had leaped when passion broke away through the song, mounting, mounting as upon wings, until Louise, in her ecstasy of love and joy and incredulity, exclaimed, C'est le paradis, c'est une ferie. And Julian answers, Non, c'est la vie, l'éternel, 
la toute puissante vie. It was the supreme, the psychological moment. The duet continued, but Maxine heard no further words. They echoed and re-echoed in her brain. They obsessed her, lifting her to a subliminal state. Across the room she saw the Italian throw away his cigarette and forget to replace it. She saw Lisa lean forward breathlessly, and she knew that in fancy she was back in the Quartier Latin, where life was young, when love laughed and her hair was wreathed with vine leaves. She saw her at last as a living woman, felt the grape-juice run down her neck, felt the kisses of the Jacques Auger, who was ten years dead. This, then, was the sum of life, not the holding of fair things, but the giving of them. She rose up, her limbs shook, but she paid no heed to physical strength or weakness. She was on a plane where the soul moved free, regardless of mortal needs. Neither Max nor Maxine had any place in her conceptions. She saw Lisa, broken but justified, because she had given when life asked of her. She saw the little Jacqueline with a halo of candlelight turning her blonde hair to gold. In a distant dream she saw the frail, steadfast Madame Salah, and in a near, poignant vision she saw Blake, and her soul melted within her. She conceived the world as one immense censer into which men and women poured their all, and from which a wondrous white smoker, scent incredibly lovely, rose continually, enveloping the universe. To give. To give without hope of recompense, without question, without fear. That was the message of life. She looked round the little room. She yearned to put out her arms, to clasp each hand, to touch each forehead with the kiss of living fellowship. Love consumed her. Humility reeled her. She was a child again, with all things to learn. The music was reaching its climax. It was filling every corner of the room, and as she glanced towards the piano in a last long look, the two voices rose in unison. Silently, none knowing the revolution within her soul, none seeing the heights upon which she walked, Maxine moved to the door and slipped out into the hall, the picture of the lovers before her eyes, in her ears the symbolic cry, C'est la vie, l'éternel, la toute puissante vie. Like a being inspired, she passed back into her own apartment, and there, with a strange, high excitement that was yet mystically calm, entered her little bedroom and lighted candles, until not a shadow was left in all the white, circumscribed space. Then, standing in the illumination like an acolyte who ministers to some secret rite, she slowly unburdened herself of her boy's garments. The task was brief. They fell from her lightly, leaving her fair and virginal and untrammelled in body, as she was virginal and untrammelled in mind. And with a sweet gravity she clothed herself, garment by garment, in the dress of the morning. Ardent and eager, yet restrained as befitted a woman aware of her high place, she left the room and passed down the escalier de Saint-Marie. A rush of cool air came to her across the plantation, kissing her hot cheeks. The holly-bushes whispered their secrets, which were her secrets as well. The eyes of the stars looked down, smiling into her eyes. She observed no face in the thronging faces that passed her. She made her steadfast way to the one point in the universe that was her goal, by right divine. 
Even in the hallway of Blake's house she did not stop to question, but mounted the stairs and knocked upon his door, regardless of the stormy beating of her heart, the faintness of anticipation that encompassed her. A moment passed. A moment, or a century. Then he was before her, appealing to the innermost recesses of her being. He stared at her, as one might stare upon a ghost. Maxine! Her lips parted, trembling with a pleading tenderness. Maxine! he said again, and now his voice shook, as hers had shaken in Max's little starlit studio. It was the cry she had waited for, the confirmation of her faith. Her hands went out to him, her soul suddenly poured forth allegiance in look and voice. Ned, Ned, take me, take me and teach me, take me away to your castle like the princess of old. Show me the white sky and the opal sea and the seaweed that smells like violets. His hands clasped hers, his incredulous eyes besought her. Maxine, this is some dream? No, it is no dream. We are awake. It is life. End of chapter 41 End of Max by Catherine Cecil Thurston